Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, have we forgotten about the working class and could this trigger a populist backlash? Brazil has decided to welcome aid to fight the Amazon fires, but only if they get to see how it's spent. And two Via Rail suspects that were tied to a terrorist bombing plot of a Via Rail train will have to be retried. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, a report from the McDonald Laurier Institute written by a former Harper advisor says that the forgotten working class could trigger a populist backlash uh, in the next election. Uh, interesting points and uh, something that uh, we're going to take a look at. Uh, the National Post has an interesting column on this. Forgotten working class could trigger populist backlash in Canada. Uh, and uh, this is penned by uh, Jesse Snyder. Canada risks a populist backlash if politicians fail to focus on the most economical vulnerable people economically vulnerable people, a new report says. Uh, The report by Sean Spear of the McDonald-Laurie Institute released Tuesday argues that politicians across the political spectrum have broadly ignored pockets of working-class Canadians who have failed to thrive in an increasingly globalized and technological economy. Uh, uh, Resentments among those people, if left unchecked, could... Uh, could feed the same sort of reprisal that led to the election of U.S. Donald, uh, U.S. President Donald Trump, uh, he says. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, and he is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good to be with you, Scott and Sean Spear. I, I just full uh, full declaration. I know Sean. Uh, I know his work. He's a very capable individual. Um, he, I, I think what he's written there is is bang on. I think he's entirely right, and it's something uh, Canadian politicians need to pay heed to. Why are we ignoring the middle class? Well, all of the political leaders would say to you that they're not. I mean, Justin Trudeau utters the phrase "middle class" and and just about every. Uh, election speech he gives but tim he seems to talk about those wanting to join it not those that are already there (laughs) yeah and he does do some um demarcation scott of 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 just that andrew shear's campaign slogan is about putting more money in your pocket and, and helping you get ahead um, but I think there are uh, the, there are pockets of dislocation, um, and and they tend to be, as Sean alludes to, and you just read the read the piece from Jesse Snyder, in areas uh, of uh, industrial development that are not popular anymore or are in decline. In the manu- places where the manufacturing sector or the commodity based production in the West, certain parts of the East, uh, rural regions that you know used to have a plant here or a plant there, and 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 are now losing all of that. Those a lot of those people are angry. I mean, I'll give you one very quick story. I was in Fredericton, New Brunswick in May. Um, that province had been strongly liberal. It flipped, as you know. They have a minority conservative government there. Right now, they have all liberal MPs there. Not one, but two taxi drivers on two different days told me about the impact they were feeling from the carbon tax and then talked about how hard it was to make ends meet in that region and that's a region that's heavily dependent on forestry and government they're not alone i hear that in so many places around this country so this is real this angst what is your definition of populism is this a bad word oh you and i have had this back and forth before uh, it can be a bad word if it's channeled the wrong way, if it's sort of a Bernier kind of populism. We, you, you, we, you probably covered the story of the billboards that were up, you mm-hmm. know, saying we shouldn't have any 
any mass immigration? Well, you know, just in that case, that that, that to me is kind of um, racist, and and that's a bad form. Maybe yeah. that's not populism, but it tries to channel people's angst. Canada needs immigrants as well to help inflate the Canadian economy. So I think populism comes in different forms and fashions. Uh, the unemployment rate is low. Is that an accurate gauge of what's happening? Not at all, uh, because some people are working three or four jobs, particularly those who aren't knowledge workers, right, uh, to get by. And that's, again, why you hear this word affordability coming up. I mean, the traditional statistics about unemployment, about um, quarterly growth are all pretty good for Canada. But you, you dig beneath the surface, people, yes, are working, but they're working hard. They're working multiple jobs, and maybe they don't have enough money at the end of the day to make it meet, uh, make ends meet. That's certainly been true before, but I think it's more pronounced now. And if you're a person who's in those circumstances and you look around the world and you look and see how um, like-minded people uh, who may share the same similar angst that you have have banded together in Europe and the United States um, and have been able to exercise political influence, why wouldn't you think about that too? So politicians need to not just, you know, look after certain segments of society. They need to be mindful that particularly in regions that were agrarian or uh, we're based on uh, different commodity products that there's challenge. Look at Alberta. I mean, how often have you and I talked about Alberta and the discontent that's out there and the debate about what well, should there be an Alberta first party? You're hearing more of these things now because people are feeling their governments are not connected with their individual circumstances. And how is traditional political parties handling this? Because they're very quick to, to, to blame the extremes or we shouldn't be like this or we shouldn't be like that, but they don't seem to understand why this is happening. Well, they try to buy off with tokenism. So what is the, the lead story today about liberal policy? Cell phones. Uh, Scott, if uh, Justin Trudeau wins, apparently we're going to have cheaper cell phone bills, right? Um, you have Andrew Scheer last week talking about uh, ending taxation on certain forms of maternity benefits. And, yep. you know, you're going to have a battle over what I call the trinkets and the baubles. Uh, who can do more for these sorts of things? But do they really bring about systemic change? They may bring about some temporary relief. Certainly, look, all parties have offered when they've been in government or not uh, retraining initiatives. All of that's important and the like, but we're not having real discussions about how this dislocation is impacting people. And then we have politicians, and they're not just Americans or Europeans, Boris Johnson or Donald Trump, who are playing people off each other. We need leaders yeah. that need to talk to the honest truths about the problems that people are having out there. And then demography, like we have an aging population in lots of rural areas, and it's not replenishing itself. And that has a pronounced impact on affordability. How do we have a greater conversation about the middle class? Because it seems politicians are talking a lot about the middle class, but addressing primarily the poor and the rich and have forgotten about the middle class. How do we have that discussion or are we all too privileged to be even opening our mouths? No, I think we got to have the discussion. Look, we've had we're going through a fundamental change, right? We're in a we're we're in a a new economic revolution of different sorts. We're fully in the flungs of the people. There's disruption. People are being thrown to the sides. But it's more than saying, hey, guess what? AI is for you. Well, if you're 56 and you've 
um, you know, make cars your entire life? Are you, are you going to be super confident that you're going to get into artificial, the business of artificial intelligence? You're probably scared. You're worried about your grandkids because your life expectancy is also longer now, too. You're probably going to live to 85. If you're unemployed for 10 years, you could be working. That's going to be pretty difficult on your bottom line. I think politicians have to say that. They have to say, look, we get and we understand and we see the data and then we have to make choices too uh, some of which people aren't going to like so is this about political change on the horizon or adapting to technological change because because many have stated that the way we see politics now is not the way it's going to be done even 10 15 years from now I think it's both, right? Uh, as as the economy changes, as the way people gather and, and configure, um, so does uh, the, the way they do do politics. I mean, we we've, we've seen that in the ever increasing rise of uh, social media, fake news. I mean, what what's that if it isn't about political change? And some of it is dangerous political change, right? Um, that's allowed people's anger to be mobilized in some would argue non-constructive ways we've seen as a consequence of some of that the you know the demise of uh, elitism and maybe that's good in some parts but it means instead of talking about our relationship with china how we're going to organize ourselves from a labor and growth perspective we're talking about cell phones and tax benefits on uh, uh, lessening tax benefits on maternity leave not that they're not important issues but they're more significant issues we should be talking about in this upcoming election where do you see our political structure 10 years from now? Is, is socialism on the rise? Has capitalism left too many behind? Where do you see us 10 years from now? I think the inequality will probably be greater. Um, uh, I think participation has the potential to rise. And if participation in the political process increases, then it, you know, I, I think the ordering of things will change. I think as millennials begin to become the more dominant voting cohort, the policies that are interested interesting to them and important to them, like affordability, like climate change, have the potential to get the right uh, attention that they want them to have. And that may shape the way we make choices and the choices that we make. I mean, uh, parliamentary democracy has withstood all sorts of revolutions before. Uh, I think it will again. It's about relevancy, though. I think that's going to be the, the key issue on a go-forward basis. What's relevant? Why is it relevant? And how do you make decisions and who's making those decisions? Uh, you, you said inequality greater. Uh, that's obviously not positive. And if we can predict that, why can't we do something about that? Um, because well, isn't I mean, that gap supposed to be shrink, uh, shrinking? That was the mod- shrinking? That's what it's the modern be- era was all about. <laughs> yeah. uh, lots of modern eras were supposed to be about that, weren't they? People mm. weren't going to work in factories for hundreds of hours. And uh, Look, I, I think you're still going to have it growing because I think the, what technology does to the economy is hyperinflates the ability of those who are masters of it to become more dominant. Uh, so unless the you know challenges the educational system change, I mean I'm in Ontario today, as are you. You know there's a big dust up over Ford's uh, teaching teacher or testing mm-hmm. of teachers. Yeah. You know whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But we need to change the educational systems, and there's so much politics around that. Anybody who dares do that gets pushed back. Uh, let's touch on the Amazon very briefly. How much of that is being politicized right now? All of it. Yeah. It seems from a whole bunch of sides. I mean, you saw Trudeau and Macron basically 
embrace and I'm being somewhat uh, facetious here, but in when they got to the G7 in Barretts and they wanted to make the focus on that, take some of it away from Trump, that doesn't mean they're not committed to the issue. I think, you know, criticisms of our Prime Minister Macron aside, it is an important issue, clearly. Yeah. You saw the Brazilian Prime Minister push back. Again, is the fire getting, are the fires getting put out in the Amazon, or is it just all these politicians adding more oxygen to the BS that they often spew that enhances the fire uh, of rhetoric and does nothing to change the circumstances in the Amazon. Uh, it was interesting. I had an ex- expert on yesterday talking about the water bombers and how uh, those are for giant fires that, that expand over large areas, not little pockets of fires here and there. So the whole water bomber thing was kind of a... Yeah, but I don't know about that. I mean, I'm not a water bomber expert. We used to do some work for Bombardier who make water bombers, but I know enough coming from where I do that... Uh, water bombers have been used in, in the East Coast and in the North to put out little pockets, right? <laughs> because they're in remote areas. I, I mm-hmm. think you put out a fire as best you can. Sometimes you let it burn to the ground. Again, I'm not an expert. I'm surprised, Scott, you're allowed to talk to experts. They're not in vogue, you know. <laughs> Tim Powers has been with us. Hey, how was your rugby weekend? Oh, Scott, you guys did great. Hamilton supported us. We lost in the last play of the game, but it was a thrilling game for those who were there, and thank you for allowing me to talk about it and we'll probably bring another game to Hamilton and I will terrorize you again to put truthful news about the sport of rugby on the airwaves. Anytime. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman Summa Strategies. Tim, thanks so much. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about the situation in the Amazon, both political and environmental. Uh, now we're getting word that Brazil says it is now willing to accept foreign aid to help fight the fires ravishing the Amazon as long as it gets to decide uh, how to use the money. Uh, Brazil's president earlier said his government would manage the problem on its own, uh, saying that they'd handled the crisis that has uh, attracted international criticism. Meanwhile, he is pushing ahead with plans to develop and farm protected indigenous reserves, which is illegal under current law. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Karen E. Hodges is with us, Professor Conservation Ecology, University of British Columbia, Okanagan, and with us now. Karen, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. So Brazil has accepted, but under their conditions, what does that mean? Well, (laughs) I, I think what it means is what any other country in the world would try to do. We all get bothered when other people step in and try telling us what we ought to do with our own business. So I'm very glad they're accepting international aid. The rainforests are critically important to the planet, but I completely understand their position about trying to manage their own internal affairs. Uh, Is this about then the rules governing the Amazon forest or actually putting the fire out? I guess my question is, is this a disaster or isn't it? That's a superb question. I think there's a lot of reason to be concerned about deforestation in the Amazon. I think that's a long-standing problem. It is much deeper than the fires we're witnessing this year. Fires make good copy, right? They're attractive yeah. to news media. Mm-hmm. But there's been... And, an politician, enormous... and politicians running for, lo- for election. Oh, I know. Disasters yeah. catch attention. But this is a multi-decade pattern mm-hmm. of people clearing rainforest burning the slash piles, converting tropical rainforest into agricultural land or grazing land. And what's different about this year is the extent of of that rapid deforestation 
and then the fact that so many fires were set in such a short time frame. But this is a long-standing issue. So how does this compare to previous years? Other, so it appears that it's, it's been a free-for-all, so there's been, been many more fires set. Is, is that accurate? That's really tricky to discern. <laughs> right. So if we look just at the last five or six years, yes, it does appear that it's much more, um, more fires set this year than in those last few years. If we go back a decade, two decades, there are other years that also had many fires. The thing that I'm more interested in, though, is not the actual count of fires, because most of those will be really tiny. It's how much land is getting burned right. and how much of that is actually burning into intact rainforest that hasn't been cleared. Those are going to be much more informative numbers for us. Why is this an issue now? Is it because they Brazil has a president which seems to want to push forward with development, farming, etc.? I think that has captured the attention of the international community. I think, though, that tropical rainforest deforestation has been an issue for decades. Right. Whose responsibility is it to monitor this? Whose responsibility is it to set guidelines? <laughs> That's a profound question about international governance. I think, yeah. I think the world is grappling with that. How much we allow each country to do its own business for environmental management and regulation, for climate change issues, for issues that do affect other countries, and how much we try to establish international coalitions that can affect each other's behavior. I should also note here, though, that Brazil only has 60-odd percent of the the Amazonian rainforest, Mm -hmm. and there are also a number of fires burning right now in Bolivia, Peru, and Paraguay. So the, the media attention has crystallized on Brazil, but this is a broader issue that affects more countries than that. Uh, you talked about this, uh, obviously these fires being set deliberately, it's for development, it's for development of farmland and such. Uh, are we blaming Brazil for doing what the rest of the world has been doing forever? Yes, I think so. Yeah. I certainly look at Canada's record, and we have extensive environmental issues of our own and how we've managed boreal forest. That being said, uh, everybody says that the the uh, rainforest is, 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 is are the lungs of of the planet. Twenty percent of the oxygen produced. Is this a world responsibility, or is this a responsibility we should all be taking, rather than putting it on uh, on the shoulders of Brazil? My answer is squarely that every person on the planet and every country on the planet shares responsibility for how how the planet is. Are we moving towards coming up from, because of the attention that this has drawn, are we moving towards coming up with some sort of agreement, something that we need to do to allow Brazil to do what it needs to do and and preserve the planet at the same time? I don't have expertise in international relations. I can't answer that question. I think it must be uncomfortable for the Brazilian government to be the focus of this much global scrutiny. What they do with that attention, I don't know. Where do you think this is going short term? Short term, a number of these fires are going to burn for the next three to four months. 
there's probably going to be a good bit of money flowing to Brazil to help fight the fires. And then the media attention is going to fade, <laughs> um, but the environmental damage is going to last for decades. So the, the real meat of the story is what policies and practices does Brazil enact over the next several decades, and whether these lands are enabled to return to tropical forest or if they are kept cleared for agriculture and other human uses. How are Brazilians reacting to this? Because I understand this president was voted in on the idea of developing a lot of this stuff. I mean, are there second thoughts here? So I can tell you what I've been reading in the New York Times and other media sources. Uh, It certainly does seem like there are parts of the Brazilian society that are not impressed with what's been going on in the the rainforest. Uh, It does seem like there's a conservative base that is interested in economic expansion um, that are happier with the government. So I think this this narrative actually could apply to any country. We're seeing this in the United States. We're seeing it in Canada. We're seeing it in different provinces. People have very different perspectives on how much environmental regulation we should have and how many of our resources we should put towards enforcing the regulations that we have. Uh, how long is it going to take for this deforestation? How long is it going to take the Amazon to recover from this? That depends entirely on what policies and, and practices Brazil puts in place. Some of this land might never recover if it gets converted permanently to agriculture or other human uses. Places that are left to regenerate naturally... That will depend on how big the fire was in, in any individual place and then details about how many seeds are present and how quickly those individual plants can grow. We're looking, best case, for, for areas that are allowed to regenerate to forest, it will take multiple decades before we're back to intact, mature rainforest. Uh, you said this has been going on for a long time, and, and, and that's the real concern, is this consistently going on and, and, and even expanding. Um, uh, is there a tipping point here? Is there a point where all of a sudden we can't recover from this? I know a lot of scientists who work in the region are deeply concerned about that. There is some evidence to suggest that some of these areas may not ever come back to mature canopy forest but instead will turn towards savanna, so a mix of grassland shrub and then individual trees because of that kind of tipping point. It's really tricky ecologically to identify <laughs> where tipping points occur. Um, it tends to be something that you identify in hindsight and say, oops, we, we just crossed one, rather than being really good at forecasting when they're coming. But I do know a lot of people are worried about that exact question. Uh, the fact that there seems to be a whole pile of smaller fires as opposed to when we see deforestation, for example, in forest fires in Canada and such, when they just take a whole swath out, is that an advantage or disadvantage? I mean, is there a way, is there a way to do this right? Is there a way to find a balance here? So we actually see a fairly similar pattern in Canada. Most of our fires are tiny, and we just never report on them or hear about them. So the, the broad-scale landscape alteration comes from the big fires, right? So you can have dozens and dozens of one-hectare fires that don't do much to your landscape, 
but then a handful of fires that are 100,000 hectares, 400,000 hectares, those are the ones that really reset a region for, for a long time. We don't yet know how big the fires are in the Amazon. We don't have good mapping of that. And so it's really tricky to try to predict, are there going to be areas that are fundamentally altered or how much is this just a really high nose count of tiny fires? Mm. Dr. Karen E. Hodges has been with us, Professor, Conservation Ecology, University of British Columbia, Okanagan. Karen, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you for covering this important story. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, Men found guilty in Villarreal terror plot will win a new trial over improper jury selection. To talk about all of this, Ross McLean is with us, crime specialist, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com. He is with us now. Ross, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, hi, Scott. Uh, Your thoughts on this. Let me just read you a little bit of the article here. The Ontario Appeals Court has thrown out the convictions of the two men sentenced to life over an alleged Al-Qaeda-linked plot attacking a Toronto-bound passenger train. In a decision released earlier Tuesday, the court ordered a new trial for the two who were arrested by the RCMP in 2013, found guilty of terrorism uh, 2015. The appeals court set aside their convictions in a unanimous ruling that said a legal error by the trial judge had deprived them of a preferred method for jury selection. Your thoughts on this, Ross? Yeah, it's a pretty complicated inside baseball. Boy, is it ever, uh, eh? Oh, it, it is. But, you know, the real, uh, I'll tell you what the real disappointment with this is, is, is we see this in so many cases where our justice system is so slow and so expensive and it takes so long to get to resolution. You know, it's, you know, justice, you know, delayed is justice denied in many ways, and particularly for the people of the country who want to see that we we deal with these cases well. Uh, how, how does this sort of thing happen? Because some are not blaming the trial judge for this, saying that it's unclear exactly how this all works. Yeah, I mean, essentially, I'll try and simplify this. And it'll, so uh, when you're doing jury selection, remember we went through a lot of this where uh, the government got involved in talking about... Uh, who gets to select a jury and what's a jury of your peers. So we know there's been lots of discussion about jury selection. But essentially, my understanding is what happens, there's two sort of simplified ways you do the jury selection. One is with the whole pe- pool of people sitting in the courtroom. You bring them up and you ask them uh, questions to see if they're going to be disqualified, if you want to disqualify them or keep them. And the other is you bring everybody in, but you only bring the people into the courtroom who are the ones who are going to be questioned. So the other ones don't get to hear the questions per se right. sort of thing. So it's something along those lines where they're saying that the judge uh, didn't allow him to pick one method or the other. Right. And in the appeal, this gets really inside baseball, the courts are saying at the time the judge did that, the judge's ruling was actually right. He was no, under no obligation. But post his decision on that, another ruling came down that said, no, you're supposed to do... A, B, and C, which he didn't do because he right. did, wasn't required to at the time. So because of that, the, the courts have ordered a whole new trial for the both of them. Um, uh, is there any reason to believe that after this jury selection process is changed and it's done, I guess, accordance to how it's supposed to be done, um, that the verdict will change here? Well, there was no mention by the courts that they felt that anything was done wrong during the trial or any any problems like that for doing it. Don't forget, one of the defendants as well, too, uh, was sort of claiming that he had a mental illness. He didn't want his own lawyer. He was trying to defend himself. You know, and that was a bit of a, 
a bit of a real show too with that going on. So, I mean, I guess the question comes down to, you wonder with the courts, and I think some lawyers would be better to speak on this than I would, but quite often the courts have to decide that, yeah, there's errors, yeah, there's mistakes, but you know what? That's okay. We don't think it changed the thing. We're letting the, letting the case stand. Here they've ordered a whole new trial, so it's going to be a whole it's going to be a big, expensive trial to, to, to run this all again. So it's probably uh, not uh, much for changing outcome. Uh, the court, the appeals court, uh, has set aside their conviction. So what does that mean? Does that mean that this ruling is not valid and the whole trial has to be done over again? Yeah, they would be they would be uh, charged again, brought up again, and go through the whole trial and 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 the whole thing, and then presumably select a jury again, uh, call back all the witnesses, all the experts, all the people. Uh, and go through it all again. It'd be a whole new trial. If uh, I assume that the Crown's going to pursue a whole new trial. Uh, what about appealing this decision? Is that possible? Uh, you know, I I believe it would be, but I, I'm not a lawyer yeah. uh, on that. I believe it is. You can usually appeal everything all the way up uh, on dealing with it. But once again, uh, you know, that's just time and money and, and waiting for something. Uh, to happen. And you have to have good grounds for an appeal. So if these judges didn't make any uh, mistakes in doing their appeal, there's not much you can appeal. So this is really uh, how many angels are dancing on the head of the pin when you read these judgments sometimes, uh, Scott. And But I think what the people want to see is they want to see justice take place in a timely fashion, though. That's what people really want to see. And Mm. I don't know that this sort of supports that at all. Uh, Will you be surprised if this runs its course and the outcome is different? Well, maybe certain witnesses won't be available anymore. Hmm. You know, there's uh, they've they've also had the, the the ability to hear the evidence that was put out before, perhaps arrange different defenses, things like that. So there's absolutely there's always the possibility things could be different. You have a different judge hear it, a different crown prosecute it. Um, I'll tell you, there's there's many times when people go into court these days, you're never sure if you're walking in with a royal flush or or a pair. Hmm and what, what the answer is going to be, regardless of what uh, cards you're holding. Ross McLean has been with us, crime specialist. Ross, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, the Global News article says, men found guilty in Via Rail terror plot win new trial over improper jury selection. The Ontario Appeals Court has thrown out convictions of two men sentenced to life over an alleged uh, Al-Qaeda-linked plot to attack a Toronto-bound passenger train from New York. Uh, In a a decision released Tuesday, the court ordered that a new trial for the two uh, who were arrested by the RCMP in 2013 and found guilty of terrorism in 2015. The appeals court set aside their conviction in a unanimous ruling that said a legal error by the trial judge had deprived them of a preferred method for selecting a jury. Uh, What does that mean as far as the threat and this trial moving forward? Let's bring in Phil Gursky, President and CEO, Borealis Threat and Risk, Risk Consulting, and he is with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. How are you today? I'm doing well. You? Very well, thank you. Your thoughts on how this case transpired? I mean, we were kind of shocked when we heard of this the first time. Uh, We're normally not involved in these sorts of things. This hit close to home. Your thoughts on how it transpired? Well, I got to be up front with you, Scott. Um, I was working at CSIS at this time, so as you can appreciate, I got to be careful with what I say. Uh, Even Mm -hmm. though I am retired, I I can't talk about a lot of details. But this is actually an interesting time because... It turns out there were two plots almost simultaneous on, in different parts of Canada. Of course, we had the plot on the Via Rail, which we'll talk about today. At the same time, we had a plot in, in, in Victoria 
by two people who were found guilty by jury and then on appeal were acquitted through entrapment. They wanted to blow up uh, the Canada Day celebrations on Canada Day on the B.C. legislature grounds in July of 2013. So you're right in the sense that we are rather blessed here in Canada in that we do not have a lot of terrorist plots. But this was a, a particular time where we had two basically unfolding on different sides of the country simultaneously. And it, as it ends up, um, both seem to have been thrown out by appeal courts. So uh, is, uh, with this case in particular, is this likely to change the outcome of the case? These two were found guilty on terrorism charges. Uh, this situation is in regard to jury selection and uh, I, I guess things that happened there that, that weren't done the way they were supposed to be done. Will that change the outcome of this trial, do you think? That's a really great question. And so when I heard this, I have to um, confess to you, I was quite disappointed. Uh, I you know, worked on terrorism at CSIS for a long time, and here we had a successful jury conviction on terrorism charges. No, nobody got hurt, you know, no, nothing got blown up. So we did our jobs, and, and, and people went to jail. So my immediate reaction was, oh, this is not good. Now, I'm not going to tell you, Scott, I'm a legal expert. I've read the rationale about the jury selection. I, I kind of get it. But I, I don't really understand, you know, the, the legal yeah. arguments behind this. I think what my fear at this point is that the, if they do have a new trial, you know, the, the facts are now six years ago, more than six years ago. Yeah, are the eyewitnesses still there? Are the, are the Crown witnesses still there? Are the people that can, can testify to gain, gain another conviction, which I think is, was the correct ruling by the jury back in 2015, Will it end differently? In other words, will these guys walk? And, and that really worries me because from what I've seen, and I'm, you know, I can only rely on open source and what people like you in, you know, in the journalism and radio world do, I see nothing to suggest these guys have changed their minds about what they were committed to do. So if, in fact, they are acquitted or the case is thrown out completely, we basically have two people who were convicted by a jury, maybe, maybe not the right jury, but convicted by a jury of conspiracy to commit terrorism, now walking in the streets of Canada. And I don't know about you, Scott, that doesn't give me a warmer fuzzy. Wow. Um, how difficult is it to assess risk on a plot with no action? It's actually quite easy. So what you do, uh, so I'll speak from the CSIS perspective. The RCMP one's not that different, actually. What you do is in the course of your investigation, you gather information. In the case of CSIS, it's intelligence, which is not used in court. In the case of the RCMP or the law enforcement, it's evidence, which is used in court. And you can gather the evidence or information in a variety of ways. You can recruit human sources or agents to get close to people. You can apply for court warrants. And there's a different process for CSIS and the RCMP to do that, where you go to a judge and say, hey, Scott's a bad guy. I need to know what he's saying or what he's typing or what he's texting. And the judge will say, fine, you can intercept someone's communications. You can do physical surveillance. You can liaise with domestic or international partners. And at the end of the day, if you do your job well, and I think we did in this case, you actually get a really good picture of intent in the sense that here's what they're planning on doing. Here's what they really wanted to achieve. The fact they didn't achieve it is thanks to the fact they were arrested beforehand. Because, of course, when you work in security, intelligence or law enforcement, you're being paid to stop things from blowing up, not to pick up the pieces afterwards. Right. And so in this case, I, I think that both the RCMP and CSIS did a stellar job. And as a result, people didn't die on that day. Um, even though when you're trying to bring all of this information to, to get some sort of conviction or at least the attention of, of officials, how do you bridge the gap before it looks like, or between, it looks like these people are going to do something as opposed to on this day, they're going to do it. Do you need that kind of confirmation? 
Well, well, another great question. You know, stop asking these great questions. I'm taxing my brain here. If I if I can go back to the Toronto 18 in 2006, so there was a, that's our most famous terrorist investigation. 18 people arrested. A whole bunch of people were were being investigated. When they were arrested on June the second, 2006, two of the guys were unloading three tons of fertilizer from a truck into a storage shed, shed somewhere in Etobicoke, I believe. And uh, unless they're going to grow rutabagas, yeah. it was pretty clear that three tons of fertilizer is used for something rather nefarious. In that case, you kind of got them red-handed, I guess, or maybe in this case, black-handed because of the fertilizer. Right. That, that makes it easy. In a case like this, all you've got to demonstrate is that beyond a reasonable doubt, these two characters, we knew that they had done surveillance. In fact, they were picked up by, I think, a via security person walking down the train tracks near St. Catharines, which is generally a, not a good thing to do, from what I, my, my mom told yeah, me. Yeah. And, and so on, on the balance of probabilities, it's quite clear that they have that intent. And obviously all you have to do is, is prove that to a judge or jury that, you know, here's our evidence. This is what we think they were going to do. Do you believe us or not? And in the case of, of these two gentlemen, they were in fact found guilty by jury. How do we prevent this sort of mistrial, uh, conviction set aside from happening? Because it seems this judge at the time thought he made the right decision, and then later there was a subsequent case that overturned this or or changed it. Um, How do you stop that from happening? Yeah, I think there's a couple things at play here, Scott. My understanding, and again, I'm not a legal scholar, is that this difference between the types of jurors that were used to select other jurors was in a state of flux at the time within Canadian legal jurisprudence. So it, it's not clear to me the rules were very solid or very clear on what a judge should or shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. So in some, kind, in some ways, it's kind of hindsight, right? Well, we do this now. Why didn't you do it then? Well, back then, we weren't sure. So that's one thing. I, I, I think the other part is that the Crown, which is the prosecution in Canada, has to be really, really careful how they present their case. It has to be really solid. You have to bring forth the right evidence, the right witnesses, the right court experts to gain a conviction. I would argue, and I just put a blog out on this on my website last night, I think courts have to get educated on what terrorism is. Because mm. I've seen a lot of cases where, where charges have been thrown out on what I think are very flimsy grounds. Because, And my, my conclusion, as someone who worked in terrorism and has written a whole bunch of books on terrorism, I don't think courts get it. Mm. I don't think they understand what terrorism is. And my fear is What that don't they get? They don't get the ideology. They don't get the fact that somebody like, so, so when Shehab Esagayar, he's one of the guys that was convicted in the VIA plot. Right. He gets to court. He represents himself. He's ranting and raving in court. And everyone's telling about it. The guy's nuts. He, he's crazy. He can't represent himself. Therefore, this is a mental health issue. We have to at take time, care of him instead of the situation. Well, yeah. But yeah. at the time I wrote, actually, he seems like he's mentally unbalanced. Everything he was saying was 100% consistent with Islamist or jihadi extremist ideology, which mm-hmm. I've written about even when I was at CSIS and in my right. post-CSIS career. What sounds like, you know, he's crazy, is actually jihadi ideology. And if the court doesn't understand that, they dismiss it as a mentally unbalanced person. That's just one small example. Mm. I-, I think, Scott, we're in a situation where, as I said, thankfully we don't see this stuff happen very often. We haven't had our, our 9-11, uh, you know, analogy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's happened in Barcelona, it's happened in London, it's happened in, in Berlin, it's happened in Paris happened in Brussels. We haven't had ours yet. And I hate to, to, to reduce it to this. Maybe because we haven't seen it to that extent, people yeah. are a little complacent when yeah. it comes to terrorism. I would also add, Scott, that I think for some people, there's an inherent bias against thesis in the RCMP, who, you know, or you guys see a terrorist behind every tree. And, and you know, the, the case in, in, in Victoria of John Nuttall and Amanda Karoti, where the, the judge said they were entrapped, 
that undermines the RCMP's case, saying, well, you guys are just, you're planting these ideas in people's heads. They're not there. Hmm. Therefore, you're being too overzealous. Therefore, you guys aren't doing this right. Therefore, we're going to quit. So I think at, at a very fundamental level, there's a heck of a lot of education that has to be done to judges, to juries, to courts, to understand what is terrorist ideology. Because when you only see something once a decade, you don't understand it properly. Hmm. How will this particular case change others moving forward, do you think? Well, I think this notion of how we select juries has already been kind of resolved. It, it, so the jury that was selected for this case it was, apparently was the wrong one. So I'm going to hope we've learned our lesson and won't do that again. Um, yeah, it depends, I guess, when the next terrorist trial come, comes to the court. You know, we've, we've talked a lot, you and I, Scott, about foreign fighters. Canadians have gone to join Islamic State and all this kind of stuff. What, when those start coming back, do we, you know, what, what would those trials look like? And, and when we get convictions, and, we, and, you know, and we've talked, I think, ad nauseum, the difficulty collecting evidence in a war zone, reliability of witnesses, all that kind of thing. So I, I see this as a work in progress when it comes to terrorism trials in Canada. And my fear is, and this is a good fear to have in a sense, because we're not inundated with terrorist plots every week, like Afghanistan or Somalia or whatever, we're not going to have that kind of critical mass of cases to learn on. And as a result, we may find the same difficulties going forward because courts just don't know how to handle something they haven't seen to any great, to any great extent. Is this case solid enough for another conviction? How do you think the public would react if these two walked? Uh, they'll go ape, you know what, if, yeah. if they walk. Yeah. I mean, the Canadian public, Scott, is already beside themselves, I think. You know, we, we talked about Jihadi, Jihadi Jack, I believe, a yeah. week ago or so. Mm-hmm. What happens with him? We've had the Omar Khadr payout. He was the son of a terrorist. He also was a terrorist. I think Canadians are getting fed up with our inability to do this properly. And I, I did, and I did read a piece about, you know, do Canadian courts get this kind of thing? I don't know that we do. I sincerely hope that the evidence is still strong enough to get a, a second conviction. Um, I guess legally is the wrong word in keeping with proper um, sort of jurist and juridical yeah. techniques. I don't see why they shouldn't be convicted again, even if they, you know, renounced their views and said they're sorry. Yeah. The fact remains in 2013. It'll be interesting to see how they present themselves in the second trial versus the first, if they learned anything. Well, and I bet you will see a difference. Yeah, yeah. So Mr. F. Geyer apparently still wants to represent himself, which is generally a bad idea in court. But to me, whether, how, I don't care if they're, if they're Boy Scouts now. The fact remains in 2013, they had intent to derail a train and kill hundreds of people. you got to pay a price for that. And some might argue, well, they've been in jail since then, but who cares? They got life sentences. So I, I would hope that going forward, the case is strong enough and that a, a new jury selected upon the, apparently the right criteria returns the same verdict. Phil Gursky has been with us, President and CEO Borealis Thre- uh, Threat and Risk Consulting. Phil, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks for calling. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.